when problems arise within the church, we treat them as family. You make sure that you remember that those who are dealing with, they are family members and that they are precious to Jesus Christ and that He indwells them. And as Spurgeon put it, they are of the blood royal of the skies. Therefore, you treat them, you speak to them accordingly. So the first principle used by the Jerusalem Council in resolving a church conflict is this. They treated each other as family. So important. But as the letter continues, we see a second principle used by the Jerusalem Council to resolve this church conflict. And that is, listen closely, they understood the difference between issues that could not be compromised and issues that could be compromised. At the end of Acts chapter 15, the apostles in Jerusalem wrote a letter to the churches that illustrated two important principles in properly handling disagreements in the church. Be kind and know when it's okay to compromise. Both of those ideals are easy to forget if we focus too much on being right and not enough on being Christ-like. Pastor Steve Kreloff will discuss all of this and more today on Verse by Verse. Thanks for tuning in. Pastor Steve is the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. Today we find ourselves in the middle part of Pastor Steve's concluding message in this series based in Acts 15. In this chapter, Luke described a conflict that had arisen in the church in Antioch when Judaizers came from Jerusalem and falsely claimed that the Jerusalem church had sent them to say that the Gentiles needed to be circumcised in order to be saved. Well, the apostles and other leaders in Jerusalem agreed with Paul, Barnabas, Peter, James, and the others that Christ's death on the cross was sufficient payment for our sins all by itself, and nothing additional is needed or possible. But now they had to communicate that decision. Notice the kindness and wisdom they showed. Here's Pastor Steve. Now, what I want you to see is that the Jerusalem Council purposely went out of their way to make sure that the Gentile believers that they were addressing, that these people understood that this letter was coming from brothers in Christ and that they considered them brothers in Christ. You see, the way this actually reads in the Greek text highlights the emphasis that they're putting on the fact that they are brothers and sisters in the Lord. The apostles and elders, your brothers to the Gentile brothers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. That's the thought of the Greek. In other words, this was a letter written by brothers to brothers, and it was the Jewish believer's way of letting these Gentiles know, right off the bat, immediately, that they had rejected the Judaizers' decision that circumcision was a requirement for salvation because they embraced them as brothers in Christ, affirming their salvation simply on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ. But beyond this affirmation of acceptance as genuine Christians, the fact that the council addressed themselves as brethren and these Gentiles as brethren, it reveals a great deal about how to resolve a conflict in a local church. Because it reveals that when a conflict arises, and there is potential always for that, and with that comes all kinds of bad attitudes, hurtful speech, things like that. The first thing to do to avoid this happening is to recognize that you are dealing with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Those who belong to the Lord, those in whom the Lord Jesus dwells. And therefore, the way you are to treat them, watch this, is the same way that you would treat the Lord himself. 
See, the New Testament makes it abundantly clear that Jesus Christ identifies with his people. We are not separate from him. He identifies with us so that what is done to one of his followers, he considers being done to him. The Lord taught this very truth in Matthew 25 when he spoke about what will happen when he returns at the end of the tribulation period and he takes his seat upon his glorious throne and then all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the believers from unbelievers and what he will say to those who are believers will reveal the genuineness of their faith by the way they treated needy and persecuted followers of his during those horrible years of the tribulation. And Jesus says the way you treated those who were needy, persecuted followers of mine, that's the way you treated me. Listen to what he said, Matthew twenty-five thirty-four through 40. And the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? Then the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Jesus is very clear that how we treat his followers, even the least of them, is how we treat him. This isn't the only time our Lord spoke like this. Remember when Paul was converted on the road to Damascus, the Lord said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He was persecuting Christians, but Jesus saw it as persecuting him. And these two incidents are not limited to mistreatment and persecution of believers. It is far broader than that. You see, it's an enduring principle that the way one treats a follower of Christ, that's the way one treats Christ himself. Jesus said this, Matthew 18. This is an incredible passage. Verses 1 through 5. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? They often did that. Often argued about that because they were proud guys. And he called a child to himself and set him before them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you're converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child... He's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Then watch this. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Now, I want you to understand, although Jesus used a literal physical child in this illustration, the point he was making, although he he definitely has a special place in his heart for children, the point he was making was not about little children. The point he was making is that those who are converted are like Literal, physical children in the sense that they're trusting and they're humble and they're dependent. So when he says that those who receive one such child in his name, they receive him. He's referring, folks, to the fact that the way one of his childlike converted followers is treated, that's the way he's treated. That's the way he's treated. Listen, as followers of Christ, we are to be loving and kind to all people. We understand that. We're to be kind to all regardless of their spiritual 
state, status. However, there should be a special place in our hearts, a special relationship, an affection that's reserved only for believers because they're family. Family. Family is special. And whenever we have a problem with a brother or sister in Christ, before you say or do anything wrong to them, it is important to remind yourself that Christ lives in that person. Lives in that person. So how you treat them, what you say to them, how you react in attitude to them should be determined by how you would treat the Lord. What you would say to the Lord. How you would react in attitude to the Lord if he was standing in your presence because in reality he is standing in your presence by dwelling in the Christian who is standing before you. Those are heavy thoughts. Those are profound truths, but we need to think about this. Several months I came across this great statement by Charles Spurgeon. And I believe I read this on a Sunday night, but I want to read it here. In which Spurgeon explains what guided him and how he looked upon a believer in Christ who is considered insignificant by the people of this world. Spurgeon said this, Bring hither the poorest peasant. Let her, if you will, be an aged woman, wrinkled and haggard with labor and with years. Let her be ignorant of all learning, but let me know that in her there is faith in Christ and that consequently the Holy Spirit dwells in her, I will reverence her above all emperors and kings, for she is above them. What are these crowned ones but men who perhaps have waded through slaughter to a throne while she has been uplifted by the righteousness of Jesus? Their dynasty is, after all, of mushroom growth, but she is of the blood royal of the skies. She hath God within her. Christ is waiting to receive her into his bliss. Heaven's inhabitants without her could not be perfected, nor God's purpose be fulfilled. Therefore, is she noblest of the noble? Judge not after the sight of the eyes, but judge ye after the mind of God, and let saved sinners be precious in your sight. Now, the point that I want you to see in all of this is that when the Jerusalem Council, when they addressed a very serious problem that had arisen in the early church, they treated their fellow Gentile believers as family. Family. And that meant that they were gentle towards them. They were kind. They were full of compassion. They were tactful as they endeavored to bring about a resolution. That's exactly how you and I are to deal with fellow believers. When problems arise within the church, we treat them as family. You make sure that you remember that those who are dealing with, they are family Members and that they are precious to Jesus Christ and that he indwells them. And as Spurgeon put it, they are of the blood royal of the skies. Therefore, you treat them, you speak to them accordingly. So the first principle used by the Jerusalem Council in resolving a church conflict is this. They treated each other as family. So important. But as the letter continues, we see a second principle used by the Jerusalem Council to resolve this church conflict. And that is... Listen closely. They understood the difference between issues that could not be compromised and issues that could be compromised. Verse 24. Since we have heard that some of our number to whom we gave no instruction have disturbed you with their words, unsettling your souls. Now, diving into the content now and into the substance of the letter, the first thing the Jerusalem Council wanted these Gentile believers to know is that they condemned the teaching of those men who came from their own church, insisting on circumcision as a requirement for salvation. These men were not their authorized representatives. 
Nor were these men given any instruction by the leaders of the Jerusalem church to speak such upsetting words that unsettled the souls of these these Gentile believers. And by unsettling your souls, the thought here is that their teaching on the need to be circumcised for salvation, it left these Gentile believers feeling confused, being worried, filled with anxiety, fearful, because it robbed them of the assurance of their salvation. Now think about this. Think how you would feel if some impressive sounding teachers came to Lakeside and started teaching something completely contrary to what you've been taught for years about salvation being by grace. That would certainly be disturbing. That would certainly leave you in a state of anxiety, confusion over your own soul, questioning, am I saved or or not? I thought I was saved. But these guys are impressive. They're eloquent. They're learned. They know the original text. You would lose all assurance of your salvation, which is terribly upsetting. And all these people were brand new in the faith. Terribly upsetting. So the first thing the council wanted to make clear is that they did not approve of these false teachers or their false doctrine that had caused such a problem for the Gentiles. However, however, there were certain men that they did approve of. And these men were being sent to them to explain the council's decision on the matter of salvation. Verses 25 through 27. It seemed good to us, having become of one mind, to select men to send to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. Men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will also report the same things by word of mouth. Now, with these words, the council begins to tell them about the decisions that they have come to regarding the issue of salvation, whether it's by faith or by works. And they have arrived, they tell them, at this decision unanimously. That's what it means when it's being of one mind. Their first decision is to send some men from their church to them, namely the men I've already mentioned, Judas Barsabbas and Silas, men who will accompany Barnabas and Paul as they travel back to Antioch. And notice how they refer to Barnabas and Paul with glowing terms. Our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I think the reason for speaking of Paul and Barnabas this way is to put their stamp of approval on them as those who are devoted to Christ and to the gospel to the point of being willing to die for Christ in contrast to the false teachers who have troubled them with their heresy. These men we approve of. These we don't. See, the point of of mentioning these four men that they're sending to them is to stress that they have their approval. They are our official representatives. And so having told them that the men from their church who had troubled them were not sent by them as their representatives, they're now telling them about some men from their church who are being sent to them as their representatives, namely Judas, Barsabbas, Silas, along with Barnabas and Paul. And what these four men are going to do is to explain, verbally explain and clarify the decision that the council has come to regarding whether or not Gentiles are saved by faith or works. Their decision is spelled out in verses 28 and 29. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols and from blood And from things strangled and from fornication, if you keep yourselves free from such things, you'll do well, farewell. That's the end. Now, these are the words that the Gentiles back at Antioch. These are the words they've been waiting for. 
Because with these words, the council is telling them that the unanimous decision they have arrived at concerning the salvation, their salvation, the requirement for it, that's what they're telling them. They've arrived at it. They've told them. You don't need to be circumcised to be saved. But in telling them their decision, they want them to understand this isn't simply their opinion. Not just a group of men who got together and said, I don't know, what do you think? Okay, let's decide on this. No, their decision is what the Holy Spirit led them to decide. Their decision is based, they say, on what the Holy Spirit has shown them to be the truth. Notice, that's what they said. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. They're not acting independent of the Spirit. So the question is then, How did they know that this was the Spirit's mind? We don't read anything about a prophet standing up during the council meeting and say, I have a word from the Lord. We don't read that. How did they know this? How did the Holy Spirit guide these men so that they understood that it was his will that salvation was by grace and not works? Well, they knew the Spirit's mind because of the three speeches and arguments given by Peter, Paul and Barnabas, and then James. As you'll recall, Peter's argument was that God has already revealed that he saves Gentiles by grace. He's already done this when he saved Cornelius, Gentile Cornelius, and his family. He's already done this. And it was by grace. And Paul and Barnabas argued that God endorsed their message to the Gentiles of salvation by faith in Christ by granting them authenticating miracles. If they were giving heresy, there wouldn't be authenticating miracles. And James argued that the salvation of Gentiles by faith is reported by Peter, that God's already has done this. It's supported by the Old Testament prophets who predicted that the Messiah, the son of David, would make believing Gentiles his people and would do it by faith. So based on what God had already done and supporting biblical evidence, it was obvious what the mind of the spirit was. Folks, it would be what we would call a no brainer. It would be a no brainer. Therefore, the spirit-led decision of the council was that no burden, meaning no burdening requirement for salvation, like circumcision, would be placed upon them. That's their decision. The question raised by the church at Antioch as to how Gentiles are saved, it's now answered. And that answer is there's nothing you need to do to be saved, but what you had already originally heard from Paul and Barnabas. And that is... Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust Christ and Him alone for your salvation. That's it. The original message is the message from God. However, it's a big however. While there was no burden being laid upon them for salvation, there were some requirements that the council was now placing upon them. And these requirements were the ones recommended by James that due to Jewish sensitivities of that day and age, Gentile believers should abstain from four practices, things sacrificed to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from fornication. Now, the last time we studied Acts 15, we looked at each of these practices, and with the exception of fornication, which is sexual immorality, which is a moral absolute, these other issues, they're practices that the Jewish people of that day either chose not to do, not to engage in, or they were specifically forbidden by the Mosaic law from doing. As I pointed out earlier, the the reason that the Jerusalem council told the Gentiles to abstain from these practices is because it would hurt their testimony for Christ with Jewish people, both unsaved Jewish people who would not be interested 
in hearing them speak about Christ while they were engaged in behavior that they found disgusting and appalling. And it would be offensive to the Jewish believers who would be offended by such pagan-like practices. Now, listen closely. All of these things that these Gentiles are being told to abstain from, apart from sexual immorality, they're not intended to be long-term binding New Testament rules to be observed by all Christians for all time. These are not inflexible laws that we are to observe today, but rather these were practices that so deeply bothered Jewish people in the first century that for the sake of Christ, they were not to be practiced by the Gentile Christians, not because there was any evil in them, not because they were inherently evil, but simply because to practice them would be to hinder their witness for Christ and their testimony for him. Therefore, these issues fall under the category of what is called today liberty issues, sometimes called gray issues. They're not black, they're not white, they're liberty issues, which are practices that the Bible neither commands or condemns, so that it's left up to us, individual believers, to decide if we're comfortable doing them. And what determines if we are comfortable doing them is if our conscience isn't bothered by such practices. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul was talking about in Romans 14, verses 22 and 23. He said, the faith which you have, he's not talking about personal faith for salvation, but the faith you have, the clear conscience you have in doing something. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith, and whatever is not from faith is sin. Now what Paul is saying is that if your conscience doesn't condemn you if you engage in a certain practice or activity, in this case eating food that had been sacrificed to an idol, then he says, feel free to eat. If your conscience doesn't bother you, if in clear conscience and faith you can do it, feel free to eat. But if you have any doubts about this, if your conscience isn't clear about this, if you can't do this activity with a clear conscience, being convinced that it's okay before God, even if it's not forbidden by Scripture, then to do such a thing would be sin for you. You see, here's the thing about liberty issues. Listen closely. What one person would consider sinful behavior because his conscience would be bothered if he engaged in this activity, another person would consider it fine to do. Why? Because his conscience isn't bothered by it. That's the thing on liberty issues. It may be right for one person, wrong for another. That reminds me of the pastor many years ago who couldn't drive his buggy to church one Sunday morning because the roads were choked with snow. So, determined to be there to preach on time to his people, he strapped on his cross-country skis and he made it to church just in time. The church leaders were shocked and appalled that their preacher had skied on the Lord's Day. (laughs) After church, they pulled him aside to straighten him out on proper Sunday behavior. The pastor explained that he never could have gotten there on time without the skis. But one elder finally quieted down the uproar, and he asked the pastor if he had enjoyed the skiing. Well, no, said the pastor. I only did it because I had to. Okay, said the elder. As long as you didn't enjoy it, that's all right. (laughs) The three L's. Legalism, liberty, and license. It's important to know which one is which. I'm glad you could be here today for Verse by Verse, featuring the expository, or one verse at a time, preaching of Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. 
You're always invited to stop in for a visit if you're in town on a Sunday. The address is 1893 Sunset Point Road. For directions and service times, go to the website lakesidechapel.com or call 727-441-1714. That's 727-441-1714 or lakesidechapel.com. As we near the end of this series from Acts 15 about the Jerusalem Council, you might want to review or get caught up on previous broadcasts. You'll find them all on the Message Archive page at versebyverseradio.org. And there's a giving page as well if you'd like to help us continue these radio Bible classes. We're thankful for those who are giving and praying. That's versebyverseradio.org. I'm Jerry Peterson. Please join us for the next Verse by Verse as Pastor Steve finishes this series. We'll consider when we should and when we should not compromise with people of different opinions. Thank you.